0: Today's reading comes from Matthew five thirty-three to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, fo- it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, You cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Liam. Father, we um, praise you for your goodness. Jesus, I praise you for borrowing a tomb for three days. And that's it. Thank you for rising again from the dead. Thank you for living a completely sinless life and proving that fact by rising and ascending into heaven. And Jesus, we, we look forward to the day when we can worship you face to face. But until then, we will joyfully worship you together here and now. And by faith, we will look to you and worship you Even though we can't see you with our physical eyes, the eyes of our hearts can. And Lord, I I pray for those who cannot yet see you in all of your glory. Would you open eyes this morning of those who cannot see your glory, who don't see you as a wonderful Savior and who don't treasure you as the source of all righteousness and who don't cherish you as the one way to encounter the glorious presence of God. So Lord you Jesus you said you are the door you are the way to God the Father you are the truth you are the life and i pray that you would pour truth into us this morning pour life into us give us the fullness of your spirit so that we can live faithfully and in a way that draws other people to you god reflect your glory through us and we would ask you by your spirit move us ever closer into your image, even this morning. So Lord, we want to sit at your feet. We want to hear your words. We want to delight in your truth. And so let the eyes of our hearts be opened. Let us have the ears to hear how wonderful are your teachings, and then fill us with your spirit so that we can accomplish what we hear and know to be true. And I pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That is uh, our portion of scripture this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to invite you uh, many of you know we don't uh, follow a liturgical calendar here, but Christians around the world have been blessed by using the, the lead up, the 40 days that lead up to Easter. We call it Lent as a time of focusing our spiritual attention on Jesus. And uh, here, this particular season, we have, as elders, committed to, uh, on Tuesdays, primarily because we pray on Tuesday evenings, we're fasting a particular meal. I know Jesus says, don't tell people you're fasting. Uh, My point is not to boast about anything that we as elders are doing, but to invite you into a season of seeking the Lord with all of your heart. And as a a way of reminding us to do that, um, we are inviting you to fast a meal, if you can, on Tuesdays, and then come and join us and pray together. Um, We need the Lord to work among us. We want the Spirit of the Lord to be present. Um, Without Him, we can do nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing, Except hurt people and bring harm to this world, and so. But with him, all things are possible. And so, uh, as an expression of drawing closer to the Lord, I want to invite you to to consider that Uh, we gather in here every Tuesday evening at 7:30 uh, in order to pray together and seek the Lord together. And so, if you uh, if you want to take us up, there's a little handout out in the lobby that sort of explains uh, kind of what. Lent is about. Uh, It's not about doing penance. It's not about punishing yourself for all the ways in which you've messed up. It's an invitation to deeper devotion. And so uh, I invite you, if you would, uh, to consider that. And uh, David Chamberlain wanted me to remind you that uh, one of the ways that we can see God is truly real and active is uh, there's a movie called "Jesus Revolution that has been out." and uh, it kind of chronicles the movement of Christ in the late '60s and early '70s, um, particularly in California among the Jesus people. And, um, and that was a movement of God that um, lasted and endured. It's a very interesting movie. I, I did go see it. Um, it. It's probably right, David said, for high schoolers and not. There's some drug use in, in the movie itself. But um, it, it's, it's hopeful in the sense of portraying a call to God to pour out His Spirit and do mighty and wonderful things. So I I'd advise you to think, consider that. Read and, and see. But as we move into God's Word... Um, the first word that we just read, that Liam read, is again, I'm with you if you want to join me, verse 33, uh, 33 to 37, again, tells us something has gone before. We're following a message that has already begun to unfold, and so to, to jump back into what we're doing, this, this call that we, we hear Jesus issuing is a, in a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And we have been following what Jesus has said. He's seated on the grassy slope of a a, a gentle sloping uh, mountain. And the disciples have gathered closely. Jesus sat down. They came close and sat near him. And then crowds then gathered around him. So you get a little bit of a picture of a view. That's the hill, uh, apparently, where it is understood to have happened. And yet we, in the Spirit, want to sit at Jesus' feet once again and listen to what he teaches and hear his words for us. Because Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And you're not automatically in the kingdom of heaven. We are automatically outside the kingdom of heaven. And his call is for those of us who desire to enter, to do everything we can to enter. And Jesus says some very hard things here. He begins to explain the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he's describing something that to the ears of the first century listeners and those sitting at Jesus' feet would have been shocked. He says in uh, 520, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes, or that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what this sermon is about. It is about understanding the kingdom of heaven. And every one of us need to ask the question, am I in? Because the the Pharisees and the scribes thought they were in and they were actually headed to hell, is what Jesus says about three times during this sermon. He mentions the reality of hell. And so what he's saying here, this teaching is very hard. It is very hard, but it is very loving it is loving to correct someone when they're headed in the wrong direction. So it is very loving to stop someone who thinks he's on I-90 East heading to Boston when he's actually on 90 West headed to Springfield. It's very loving to to alert him to his error. It's uncomfortable sometimes, and yet here's what we have to do is to explain truly what the kingdom of heaven is. Because if you miss it, Even in the smallest degree, it will be a tragic loss of your soul, right? What what is the gain to have the whole world and yet lose your soul? And so aviators, uh, we have heard this rule of one in 60. Aviators teach that if you're off by one degree, headed to your destination for every 60 miles you travel, you're going to miss the mark by a mile, Now, that's not a huge deal in short distances. For example, if we were going to fly from Boston to Rhode Island, we're off by one degree, you'd land up in Fall River, Massachusetts. Not a huge deal, but over the course of a long distance, the, the impact is more significant. For example, if you were at the moon and you wanted to fly home to Boston and you were off by one degree you would land in the Pacific Ocean 1,000 miles off the coast of San Francisco. That's a massive error. How tragic would it be for people to think, I am righteous in the sight of God, only to find out on that last day when you stand before His judgment seat and discover you were off by even one degree in an understanding of His righteousness. Jesus is correcting the error That's what he's doing in this particular portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving examples where the teaching of the scribe and the Pharisee have been slightly off. They've they've gotten it partly right, but partly wrong. And because of that, Heaven and hell hangs in the balance of what we're seeing. And so he's given examples of where the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees have fallen short. Quickly, just to go through them, just to keep us all on the same page. And I, I appreciate your review. As a pastor, I struggle. I, I have said this almost every week. Right? But some of you, this I've never, I don't know what sermon series you're on. First time I've heard. So if you've heard this 12 times, uh, teachers know repetition is good, right? We all need to hear things again and again. So let's keep in mind what Jesus is doing. He's giving examples of the falling short of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. So in verses 21 to 26, he uses the sixth commandment as an illustration. He says, you think you're good, which is do not murder. You think you're good so long as you've not committed the act of murder. And he says, the righteousness of God actually finds you guilty if you have meditated on hatred and harbored the thoughts that lead to murder. So you're not as righteous as you think, is what he's saying. He gives a second example, verses 27 to 30, which concerns the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. And he says, you think you're good because you've never committed the act of adultery, but actually the righteousness of God demands purity of thought. So if you've even dreamed about it, you're is guilty in the, in the sight of God. The third example we looked at last week was also based on the seventh commandment. It relates to the factor of divorce. And he says, you have taught that it's okay to divorce for any reason whatsoever, as long as a certificate of divorce has been given to the divorced woman. And he says, you're actually, unless it's a lawful grounds of the one exception, you're actually forcing her to commit the adultery by getting married to someone else. And that guy also is committing adultery. So you, you're teaching Pharisees and scribes is actually leading to instances of divorce of of, of adultery and breaking of the law and so your teaching is hurtful and so now he gives a fourth example which has to do with your words it has to do with swearing of oath and the words that we take and I wonder how many of you spend any time worried about the words you say do we seriously think about our words I hear James in the back of my mind that says, let not many of you be teachers because you're going to be held to a stricter standard. That makes me stay awake at night sometimes. And so do we as Christians think about our words? That's the call today. The invitation is to consider what you say. And so here's the, we'll first look at, where the Pharisees went wrong. Jesus says the Pharisees are like those who have relaxed the commandments of God. And he said they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So this relaxing of God's commands is what the Pharisees have done. So we'll look at what the the Pharisees have taught and then we'll look at what Jesus teaches. So verse 33, let me just read it one more time. Again, you have heard it said of those of old that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform uh, to the Lord, what you have sworn. So he's restating the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. You shall sw- not swear falsely, but you shall perform the word that you have sworn. And my question is that sounds pretty good to me. Right? What's, what's wrong with that? We should not swear falsely, and we should keep our word to the Lord. So why is this an issue, Jesus? What, what are you saying here? He's, he's going to say that the, the vows are broken. You breaking your vows is a violation of God's law. And, and my question is, why does he go to this issue after having just talked about divorce? Well, isn't it obvious? He's, he's thinking, you have broken your marriage vows. And, and if, as we have seen so far, he has gone to a commandment at every illustration, if he's continuing that same pattern... And he's thinking about the ninth commandment, which is uh, found in Exodus 20, verse 6, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In in other words, you you, you give your word, it ought to be true. So I think in Jesus' mind, he's thought about divorce and he's thought about here's a breaking of a vow. And so yet you Pharisees, there's some more teaching that will unfold as we move forward. He's going to say, here's where you have also gone wrong. And so this is the foundation of what the Pharisees are teaching. And and it's probably this law. Now, the exact quote that I read in verse 33, we don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. So Jesus is not quoting an exact passage of Scripture. What he's doing is pulling together the summary of the scribes and Pharisees, that cover about three or so different passages. And I want to read them to you to get them before us. Now, Exodus 20, 16, I just read that. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This says much more than don't lie. How many of you were taught growing up, that's what this commandment means, don't lie? I I was. It's true, it's in there, but there's a legal setting that serves as the backdrop here bearing false witness is being called upon in a kind of legal setting in order to publicly give testimony. So don't lie is absolutely true, but there's a sense in which when you're called upon to give voice to something, speak the truth. That's what's here. Always speak the truth. Now this gets fleshed out a little bit, but the question is here, are you speaking the truth? But in, in a public setting, when you're called upon to give testimony, don't bear false witness. Don't lie in when you're called to give testimony against your neighbor or to prove something about your neighbor. So this ninth commandment probably is the basis. And the swearing falsely comes probably from Leviticus 19, 11 to 12. So look with me at Leviticus 19. Here's the, here's the quote. You shall not deal falsely. So that's the beginning Right, So lying always has a dealing of falsely that's it's rooted in the, in the very essence of it. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Because so, I am God. You see that there. Don't swear falsely, which probably includes invoking the name of the Lord. We need to be really careful about using God's name when we're talking haplessly invoking the name of God here is warned against. Don't lie, don't bear false witness, don't speak, or swear falsely in my name because you profane it. So our words reflect on the character of God, we see. Our words reflect on God's character. And he says, don't swear falsely because you profane my name. So God's name is at stake in how we speak. Do you feel the weight of that? If we're Christians, then, and then we carry the name of Christ. Our words reflect upon the Lord. We need to be very, very careful about this. Why? Because God never lies. It is impossible for him to lie, he cannot lie. He, Isaiah 65 said, He is the God of truth. He is truth in his very essence. Is that you and me? We love truth at the very core of our being because that's the very nature of God. So be careful with your words. So there's one more passage that fills this out, which is Numbers 30. First couple of verses. This is what we read. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge... He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. What is he saying? If you give your word, keep it. If you you promise something, fulfill it. Whatever you say, keep your word. So implicitly, of course, we need to think, I better be careful what I'm saying, right? right? So the swearing of oaths, why is that even a thing? We know why. It's because we're all prone to lie. And if you can get out of keeping a commitment, especially when it becomes costly, the majority of people will do it. That's why we all sign a contract when we buy a house, right? Why? Because we don't want to run the risk of not fulfilling the obligation. And so if you want somebody to ensure they will keep your word throughout the course of the history of humanity, you've either had to swear a public oath or sign a 10-mile-long legal document because we're all prone to lie, right? There's another witness here to this notion that we're not inherently good. We are inherently deceptive as as human beings. And the swearing of an oath, a public oath almost always, involves accountability because if we heard your vow and heard your promise, we hold you to it. Otherwise, when things get difficult, what is our tendency? I just want to take the easy way out. And nine times out of ten, that's lying. Let's just color it a little bit, shade it a little bit. And so here God's word is saying, if you say or give your word in any way, you need to keep it. Avoid lying. And the problem is with the Pharisees here, they figured out ways of saying what appeared to mean one thing but actually meant something different. Now, just a quick footnote on... We see an illustration here how to understand what carries over and is binding for the Christian in the New Testament era from the Old Testament. You often struggle with what are we supposed to do with the Old Testament law? What do I, what do I keep and, and what can I let go of? Because Jesus' coming has changed everything. A, a, a quick rule of thumb on this is whatever Jesus or the New Testament authors, his apostles taught that we find in the Old Testament, it's abiding for us today. So things like what Jesus is is saying here, don't lie, that still is binding over us, to tell the truth. The the word of God in the Old Testament that we see affirmed in Jesus' teaching and in the apostles' teaching remains binding for us. For example, we, we saw this a while back, Jesus changed, he fulfilled the dietary laws, The point of those food laws was to indicate the difference between what is holy and what is not. And Jesus came and fulfilled that. And so he declared all foods clean, meaning that's no longer necessary to teach that distinction. That's not abiding. That's not binding over us. And and the other ceremonial laws like animal sacrifice and going to a priest and so forth, all of that which is attached to the temple, Jesus fulfilled. So, we're, not, we're no longer uh, in, inclined to abide under those portions of the Old Testament command. So, what Jesus teaches and what the New Testament authors, authors teach as abiding, we still must embrace as Christians. So, moving on then, this is the trickery of the Pharisees. We now taking these principles that we have just seen tell the truth always, keep your word, fulfill your obligations they taught the truth which is don't swear falsely and fulfill your promises but they developed uh, something called a casuistry which is taking a general principle and applying it in very particular situations uh, in order to figure out the details of how the principle applies so jesus is going to expose in later in the book of matthew the real problem with that verse that I just read from 33, it's true. The preaching was right. The practice is dead wrong. And here it's explained in Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. So they came up with a very creative system of how to say one thing and do another. That's the problem with uh, the, the speech of the, and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Let me just read it to you. It's a little long, and hopefully you can see it. It's kind of a smaller print, so I apologize if you're in the back. But here's what Jesus says. "'Woe to you, guides, blind guides, who say, "'If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. "'But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, "'then he is bound to keep his oath. "'You blind fools, for which is greater, "'the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? "'And you say,' scribes and Pharisees, "'if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing.' But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound to his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So you see what the Pharisees were doing. If you make a promise and you say... I promise by the holy temple, I will keep my word. And later you decide you really don't want to keep your word. The teaching of the Pharisee is, well, you can get out of that. But if you swear, I swear by the gold of the temple, I will take you out to lunch after church next week. Uh, if, if next week rolls around, the, the Pharisees would say, you, you, no, you've got to take him out. You swore by the gold of the temple. There's a, it's, it's a way of saying one thing and doing another. It's intentional deceit, and the same way with, um, as we see the altar. Right? If you, I swear by the altar, I will fulfill my obligation to you, and then you discover it's a costly obligation. Uh, Well, actually, I don't. I don't have to abide by that. I didn't swear by the gift that is on the altar. That's the reasoning, and so it's like me saying to my dear son. I will pay for, I, I swear by the altar, I will pay for your college tuition when you graduate. And then he graduates, and I see the bill. And I decide, I, you know, this is not working out for me. I, I'm not going to do that, my dear son, Alex. You'll, I'll pray for you to figure out how to pay that bill. And Alex says, Dad, you swore to me by the altar you would pay for my tuition. And I say, aha. <laughs> ha. But I did not swear by the bull that was offered on the offering. I'm out. That's what was happening among the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus is saying, this is foolishness. It's like us as little kids. How many of you as a little kid, you, uh, you, you made a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back? You know, Yeah, I promised I'd take her to the dance. But I have my fingers crossed, so I'm not obligated to teach. We, we do all kinds of things like that. But they just get more complicated as we get older. And here Jesus is saying, keep your word. Why? Because you think... So the Pharisees had this very complex system of deciding which was really close to the character of God and which was far away. So the, temp, the altar is close, but the gift is even closer. The temple is close, but the gold is closer. It's on the outside. So that which is closer obligates us more. It's nonsense. Jesus said, the temple is the place where God dwells, gold or not. It makes no difference. The the point Jesus is making is everything relates back to God. All of your words are in the presence of God. He doesn't miss anything. So your promises need to hold true because you're bearing His name as a Christian, as a follower of God, So the central issue is really the holiness of God because this how we speak reflects upon his nature because does God ever break his word? Does he ever fail to keep a promise? I I think what in essence we're seeing here is God saying you shall always keep your word because I always keep my word. You shall keep your promises because I always keep my promises. And if you are my children, I expect you to act like me. So you shall be holy even as I am holy. So God's nature ought to influence everything we say. So that's the problem with the Pharisees' teaching. They're saying one thing, but actually intending to do something completely different. And now let's go to what Jesus says in verses 34 to 37. This is Jesus' response to this verbal, linguistic game of gymnastics that the Pharisees are playing. He says, I say to you, this is constantly what we hear, you have heard it said by the scribes and Pharisees, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, that's the city, It's, it's his city, the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, Because he created it, you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more from this comes from evil. So here's the simple answer to the question of how we ought to speak. Yes and no? Mean what you say. You say yes, be yes. You say no, let your word be no. If you say it, mean it. If you're going to give a promise or a vow, then keep it. Everything we say is related to God. It's all about Him. No matter what you're pleading to for authority to augment weak words. What Jesus is saying is be such a person of character and of your word that everybody knows when you say it, you mean it. That's the kind of people we are called to be. Now, one particular question is, is Jesus here uh, forbidding the taking of all oaths? There are some denominations, some sects that teach you cannot take an oath at all because Jesus is saying here, do not take an oath at all. It's what he says. Is that what he means? I, I think the answer to that has to be no, because taking an oath is not sinful in and of itself. What's sinful is you being such a person that your word is meaningless and so you have to appeal to some higher authority in order to give weight to your word. So is it unlawful to take to swear an oath at all, universally? I, I, I think no, because God swears an oath a couple times in the Bible. Several times. One example. Several examples I'll show you. Abraham. God swore an oath to Abraham and he said... I swear by myself, I bless him and his descendants and multiply them as many as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore and that in his offspring all nations will be blessed. God swore an oath. He says, I swear by myself. And that's not because God was prone to lie, is it? God is giving firm conviction that he's going to keep his word to a people who are very accustomed to hearing other people break their word. So God is affirming with an oath a promise in order to bolster faith. That's what God is doing here, to give sure and certain confidence in his word. This is what we find in Hebrews 6, chapter 13. God swore an oath to give us firm conviction and belief in him. Secondly, Jesus also in his teaching does this thing. There are some who say you cannot add any kind of intensifying words to your no and yes because of this commandment. If you say no, that's it. Don't say no, I promise. Don't add any words of intensification. And I have to say, but Jesus did this. Do you remember in Scripture, how many times did Jesus say, truly, I say to you. Do you know how many times he says that? 50 times. How many times does he say, truly, truly, I say to you? 25 times. He's not sinning and neither is he prone to lying or exaggeration what is he doing when you hear truly truly what happens in your brain i better pay attention he's saying something important so that's that's not wrong of jesus to do it he's intensifying the truth and in, when Jesus was called upon during his own trial, he swore an oath. When the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, are you the son of God or not? And Jesus said, yes. And he didn't say, well, don't use that kind of language. You, you can't swear an oath in a court of law. That's unacceptable, high priest. He didn't say anything. He just said, yes. I say to you, you say that I am, yes. And then lastly, the Apostle Paul does this multiple occasions. I, I, I'll read... 2, Romans chapter 1, verse 9. As God is my witness, I do not cease of making, you, making mention of you in my prayers. He's calling upon God here. He's, he's, he's appealing to a higher authority. He does this about four or five times. 2 Corinthians one twenty three, he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ. And then finally, he does so twice in 1 Thessalonians. So here's several reasons why. Jesus is not here saying that all oath-taking is forbidden. He is saying, are you a person of your word? Christian, if we serve a God who never broke his promises, then the righteousness of God calls his followers to do the same. We are called to live with that kind of standard. And if you're sitting here as I was when I read this text, I'm like, Think back last week. How many of you could say, I never broke my word last week. I, 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 I'm, I'm impeccable. Right, it, are our words, do we even think about them long enough to know what we said last week? Right, we're called to be holy, just as God is holy, and that includes our mouths. So in conclusion, how should we think about oaths? I say the first thing we should think about is that since God always keeps his word, so must we. We must be a people who are honest. It is impossible for God uh, God to lie. It's not the case with us. And yet, do you pray into this? God, let me speak the truth. Help me to say only what you would want me to say. Is this a burden for our hearts? Because truthfulness is the character of God in the very core of his being. And Psalm 15 tells us if you want to dwell with God, you have to manifest the same character. Let let me read a couple of verses from Psalm 15. First four verses O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who Who will dwell with you in your holy hill? Who? Hello? He who speaks truth in his heart. Notice the references to speaking. Who does not slander with his tongue and who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So notice the speaking the truth in your heart. That's where it begins. Truthfulness coming out of your mouth becomes when you, inwardly, you cherish speaking the truth. And, And that's a call for all of us. Do I speak the truth to myself? Am I lying to myself? What's happening inwardly as I think about these things? And, and then outwardly, don't slander. Don't speak slander, speaking untruthfully uh, about someone else's character. And then third, he gives his word and keeps it even when it hurts. Does that describe us? You, you give a promise and you'll keep it. For example, uh, Todd, can you please give me a ride to the airport? What, what time do you need to go? At 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I think, okay, 2 o'clock, that's good. I can go lunch break. I can take you, no problem. Traffic's light at 2 o'clock. Absolutely. Uh, I say yes. I give my word. A couple days later, I get, a, get another phone call. Um, they actually delayed my flight, and now I, I leave at 8.30. Can, can you still take me? <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> it's the middle of rush hour. Traffic's going to be crazy. Take forever to get down there. My night is ruined. And yes, I can, I can take you. Right? Do we, we give our word. Do we keep it? I, I know of a young couple who uh, signed a 12-month lease on an apartment and one month into the lease were given an opportunity uh, to take a, another job that included free housing. And so... Going, they went back to the landlord and said, uh, we have a situation, can we get out of the lease? And the landlord says, oh, yes, but you have to find someone else to rent it. Well, no one was found. What would you do? You're forced with the decision of, am I going to pay rent on an empty apartment that I'm not using because I have given my word? Or am I just going to cut and run? Right? And this young couple chose to pay rent on an empty apartment they weren't using because they had given their word because of this verse Psalm 15 A Christian is a kind of person who gives your word and keeps it even when it hurts when it's costly to do so and that's when we want to give up isn't it we when you give your word and it suddenly is difficult to keep it we just want to bail out we want to quickly run that's not the character of our god he does not do that. He does not give a promise and then say, "Yeah, it's kind of difficult now. You guys are getting a whole lot more stubborn and unpleasant to be with. I, I'm not going to deliver you into the promised land. <laughs> Just wander in the desert for a little while. He doesn't do that. That shouldn't be our character as well. So when our God's character is one of keeping his promises, so too must we. So this forces me, secondly, to conclude, we should be careful about what we say. We should be careful and thoughtful about what we say. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. In other words, uh, you won't have to worry about breaking your promises if you're very careful not to give them when you can't keep them. Let your words be few. Don't speak rashly. Don't speak thoughtlessly. And I think about parents, how often we can do this so very easily. You know, I, I, I think I probably disappointed my daughter. I'd said she said, "Can we build a tree house in the, in the tree in the backyard?" And I think I said, probably. I was reluctant to commit. I I wanted to, but that does a lot of work and they're very expensive. But I could see dads, we easily can say, yeah, we'll we'll build one. And 14 years later, there's no treehouse, right? Parents, how often it is easy to just shut them up, just to say whatever we want to say, whatever they want to hear. But yet they're listening. Don't give your word if you can't fulfill your promise. And daughter, I'm sorry if I told you that I would build a tree house that came to mind. I think it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Like, yeah, Todd, you said some of this stuff too. Third, um, aim to be such a person who when you give your word, no one doubts it. Aim to be the kind of man or woman who when you give your word, everybody knows you'll keep your promise. Matthew 12, 34, and 37. This is a serious issue. We we think it's not serious. Preaching about telling the truth. We all know that. Got that? No big deal. This is very serious. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And the first time I read that and understood what it meant, I thought, that's work salvation, right? What you say will either justify you or what you say will condemn you. It's, it's doing. And then I forgot about the first verse right? The saying flows from where? It flows from what you treasure. Out of your heart comes words. And I can't help but ask the question, if you think over your words, what do they say about your heart? When you, what do you talk about? That reveals what's in your heart. What what do you value and what do you speak on? What do you proclaim? What do you appeal to when you make a promise? It reflects what's in your heart. So the treasure of the heart influences the words coming out of your mouth. And what is it? What is it? We can can't we sometimes just say the harshest things? Bitter words? And where do they come from? If if our words are a problem, it simply points to a heart issue. And there, we need the Holy Spirit of God, who Jesus says is the Spirit of truth. Three times in, in his final discourse with his disciples, he referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you cannot be comfortable in lying. You cannot. And you ought not. And if you're convicted about things you've said as you're hearing me preach, this is the work of the Spirit to say, you need some work. And and we're going to share communion together in just a moment. And, And we ought to think deeply about our words because there is forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. And so Jesus says, if you want to be holy, like the holiness required for the kingdom of heaven, guard your words, which means guard your heart. So we have to, if you want to change your language, you got to go down into your heart and invite the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to craft holiness and truth within you. And that's what I want to invite you to pray with me. If you're a Christian I think the Spirit of God is constantly molding and shaping us into the image of Christ. If you're not a Christian, then I would invite you to ask the Lord today to give you His Holy Spirit, to invite the Spirit of truth into your, your heart and your life and to submit to Him. As we see, this is, what's, this is what is expected for those in the kingdom of heaven. This is what this is about. This is about inviting the Spirit of God within us to transform us so that we can be sure that we are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And so let's pray together. Jesus, you invite us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, would you speak to our hearts right now, all of us? Uh, Have we said yes to you? Is, is that our custom to say yes to you or to say no? God, forgive us when we have said no to you. Move our hearts to confess that sin of rebellion. Because Lord, we cannot lie before you. You know the depths of the secrets of our hearts. And yet you say, if we will come to you, you will never cast us out. And so, Lord Jesus, I I invite you into my heart to reveal to me ways in which my words don't reflect the holiness of your character. And I pray everybody listening to my voice would do the same. Would truly ask for the work of your spirit to sanctify our hearts so that our words will be clean and true. God, let us be a people who when we give our word, those around us know we will keep it at all costs. Let your people, Lord Jesus, be a faithful people who love the truth and speak the truth in the depths of our hearts. So God, if we cherish truth in our hearts, then we will cherish truth on our lips. And by your spirit, Lord, I know that that kind of holiness is possible. And I invite you to do that work among us. Father, guard us from the easy temptation to just lie and bear false witness and make promises we don't intend to keep. Please forgive us of that. Cleanse us of that. And give us a love for the truth. And maybe that means we say fewer words. But Lord Jesus, would you... Would you come and do your holy work in our hearts, I pray. Amen.